read the holy and inspired word of God this morning from Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. going to begin reading at verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. Just notice the first couple of verses as well as that sets the context here for the parables. Then drew near unto him, Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now verse 11 to the end. And he said, certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, but no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field. As he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. This thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. 
read the Word of God that far this morning. On the basis of that and many other passages of God's Word, is the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 51. Lord's Day 51 is found in the back of our Psalter on page 27. Which is the fifth petition? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions nor that depravity which always cleaves to us even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in this fifth petition of the model prayer, we're taught by our Lord Jesus Christ to humbly make confession of our sins and to plead with him for forgiveness. That petition is, at the same time, most difficult and most necessary. This petition is difficult because when we truly pray this to God, we're humbly acknowledging the greatness of our sins against him, the fact that we're wholly undeserving of his grace and salvation. And this petition, when truly prayed, is also difficult because we're expressing here a willingness and readiness to forgive our neighbor of his sins against us, And forgiving another and reconciling is very humbling and difficult. At the same time, this petition is so necessary and important. Our greatest need is the need for the forgiveness of our sins. With the Lord's Prayer, we often distinguish the first three petitions, which have to do more directly with God, his glory, his kingdom, his will, and then the second three petitions which have to do more directly with our own needs. And When we come to that second group of petitions, we pray first of all for our daily bread. But that's not our greatest need. If all we have is daily bread without the forgiveness of sins, it's as if we're merely cattle fattened for the slaughter. What we need more than anything else is to know the forgiveness of our sins. And the forgiveness of our sins rightly then is at the very heart of the gospel of grace and is the chief of the blessings of our salvation in Christ. The truth set forth in that model prayer is taught by the Lord Jesus in the parable here in Luke 15. In the context, the Lord Jesus Christ has received to himself publicans and sinners. 
publicans, as you know, were tax collectors. They were some of the most hated people in Jewish society. They were viewed as traitors who were helping support and prop up the heathen Romans. They were often crooks who stole from the people of Israel more than what was necessary. And with them were sinners. And these are people who were known as sinners. They were those who'd committed gross public sin, perhaps adultery. Now God had worked in the hearts of some of them sorrow and repentance over their sins, a real brokenness. And the Lord Jesus Christ receives them, sits down with them, eats with them, expresses to them the forgiveness of their sins. But that angers the unbelieving Pharisees. Pharisees think that these great sinners are undeserving of grace and forgiveness. They've not done enough to to earn that right standing. They view this then as another evidence that Jesus Christ can't possibly be the Messiah. Jesus responds to that with a series of three well-known parables. These three parables go together. They're a trilogy. And while there's a unique emphasis that's found in each one of those three parables, they're teaching the same precious truth of the gospel. One man once compared these three parables to three different musical instruments. Those three musical instruments, they all have a different sound that they make, but they're all playing the same piece of music. And while all three of these parables are well-known and beautiful, it's the last of them that we especially relate to. First, there is the parable of the lost sheep and the seeking shepherd. Then secondly, the parable of the lost coin and the woman that scours her house in order to find it. And finally, the lost son and the merciful father. While we learn much from the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, in the end, we're not sheep and we're not coins. But we are wayward sons and daughters of God. What we learn, especially from this last parable, is the truth that's set forth in Lord's Day 51. The fact that we're taught by Jesus to pray, and to pray regularly for the forgiveness of our sins, making confession of them humbly before God. Especially what we learn is the blessed truth of the gospel. The mercy of our Father who forgives us our great and many sins. Consider this word of God under the theme, forgive us our debts. Three points of the sermon are three parts of that petition we're taught to pray. First of all, as we confess our debts. Secondly, the petition, forgive us. And then thirdly, that last part of the petition, as we forgive. In this fifth petition, Jesus teaches us to make humble confession of our sins before the face of God. And to impress upon us the 
seriousness of our sins against God, Jesus uses the figure of debts. He doesn't teach us to pray, forgive us our sins, although we know that's the, the reality here. But he says, forgive us our debts. To be in debt means that we've borrowed money from some person or a bank in order to buy something or to pay for something significant that we don't have the money for ourselves. There's an obligation that we have to pay that money back at a certain time and perhaps with interest. That is a very common thing in the society in which we live today. In many respects, we may feel as if we really can't live life in society today without a certain measure of debt, perhaps to buy a house. But because of the prevalence of debt, and because of the helps that there are to a person that's in debt today, we miss something in our society then about the horror of that position. That's something that would have been impressed upon the disciples when they heard Jesus to teach them, teach them to pray this way about debt. At that time, to be in debt was to be in a horrible position. You owe someone else money and you don't have the means to Pay that person back. And if you're not able to pay that person back, that means that all that you have can be taken away and given to your neighbor. Your children will be taken and put into slavery to that person until the debt is repaid. And you yourself will be put into a debtor's prison. To go into debt to someone was not something that was quickly and, and readily done. And to be in debt without the means to repay was to experience horrible consequences. Jesus teaches the disciples and us to pray this way, forgive us our debts, in order to impress upon us the utmost seriousness of our sins against God. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve perfect called them to obey him perfectly, and he created them capable of serving him in perfection. And for a very brief time, they served him perfectly. Then Adam and Eve fell into sin, and in so doing, they dragged down with them the whole of the human race into sin. So that the whole of the human race is conceived and born dead in sin, totally depraved. And yet, the demand of God remains the same. God still requires that mankind serve him perfectly, love him with heart and mind and soul and strength all of the time and demonstrate that in love for one's neighbor. But the reality is, there's no one who's able to fulfill that obligation. Not only do we bear responsibility for the dead of Adam in the beginning in that original sin, but every day you and I commit our own sins against God. And every one of those sins brings with it an infinite debt before our God. 
Not only are we in debt, but there's no means whereby you and I are able to pay off that debt, to deliver ourselves out of that position. We have nothing to give to God. There's none of our works that we can present to God because all of those works are corrupted and defiled with sin. And the demand of God is the demand of perfection. We have nothing that we can present before God of ourselves that in any way will reduce or take away that debt. And What we deserve is the just judgment of God upon us on account of our sin and debt. On account of our sin and guilt and the debt we've incurred, we are liable to the condemnation and the just judgment of God both now and forever. The situation could not be any more serious. That's true for you and for me. This isn't just a doctrine that we think now applies out just in the wicked world. This is true for you and for me by nature. You and I are responsible for the sin of Adam and Eve in the beginning. That's our sin. There's debt that we owe, infinite debt before God on account of that original sin in the beginning. And then added to that is the debt of all of my own daily sins against God. My sinful words and my sinful actions, my sinful thoughts and my sinful desires. Sins of omission, sins of commission, my secret sins that I'm not aware of, and my presumptuous sins where I sin knowingly and willingly. I have nothing to present before God to take away or to reduce the debt of my sins before Him. I am deserving God's just Judgment and condemnation, both now and forever. What Jesus teaches us here is to make humble confession of those sins before God. That's taught, obviously, in the prayer itself as we cry out to God, forgive us our debts. Taught by Jesus as well in the parable of the lost son. It's a parable that we're familiar with. There's a man with two sons, an older and a younger. The younger son demands his portion of the inheritance that he thinks is coming to him. When he receives that, he immediately liquidates all of those assets. He takes this large sum of money and he goes off into a far country. And there he wastes it all with a sinful life of hard partying, of adultery with harlots, so that he's left with, with absolutely nothing. 
He attaches himself to a farmer in that land to try and provide for himself, but he's left so destitute that there's no one to care for him. He has absolutely nothing. He's sunk down in the pig filth, and he's not able even to eat what what the pigs eat. And then we read, in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And in verse 21, we read that he goes to the father, and that's what he says to his father. The great makes humble confession of his sin against his father. And so also, in our prayers, and often daily, must we make confession of our own sins before God. That's an aspect of genuine repentance and brokenness. The fact that Jesus is describing that here, although he doesn't use that word, is evident from the parallel parables. For example, in the parable of the lost sheep in verse 7, he mentions one sinner that repented. And that word for repent means literally a turning of the mind. Genuine repentance is at heart a turning of the mind where once we loved sin and hated God, God by his grace has brought about a turning in our mind so that now We hate that sin. We're grieved by it. That sorrow and hatred in the heart for one's sin manifests itself in confession of that sin to God. Often by nature, we want to do everything but confess our sin. We want to Come up with our own way of covering up that sin. Hiding it from the view of others. Or trying to to minimize our sin. To make excuses for what we've done. To try and shift the blame for what we've done to someone else. Or to some circumstance of life. But genuine repentance. Turning of the mind. And sorrow and hatred for sin. Shows itself in Humble, open confession of one's sin before the face of God. I have sinned. These sins are my debt. And repentance, genuine repentance, then shows itself in the fruits of repentance. In an actual turning then of One's life and a forsaking of sin and a pursuing of a life of holiness and obedience. Such confession of sin is a necessary aspect of the Christian's life, Christian's prayer. Not that, as we'll come to see a bit more later in the sermon, that this confession of sin makes us deserving of God's forgiveness. 
Full amount of sorrow over sin or confession and acknowledgement of sin makes us deserving and worthy of God's forgiveness. This is the way in which God does work in our lives. As he worked in the life of this lost son. That he works in our hearts a turning of the mind and a sorrow and hatred for sin expressed in a confession of sin and a turning from that way of sin. Now, sometimes the the question is raised, as a child of God, one who's justified and right be with God, with a righteousness that can never be taken away, Why is it necessary for the child of God still daily to confess his sin and to plead with God for forgiveness? It's true. As a justified child of God, I have right standing with God that can never be taken away or lost. Yet still... Daily, I sin against God. And that sin brings with it a sense of guilt and shame before God. The manner of God's leading us in this life is such that He leads us then to see that sin and to make humble confession of that sin before His face. As each of us examines our own heart and our own life. We ought to see ourselves in that lost son. Now, for many of us, perhaps we've not committed some great, gross, public sin like this prodigal. We've not gone off and lived like an unbeliever for a time, wasting everything we have and hard partying. But the point of Jesus in this parable is to impress upon us this is how we're to see ourselves. We're to see ourselves and to identify with that lost son. And in brokenness over our sins, cry out to God and to humbly confess our sins against him. Confessing our sins to God, we plead with him to forgive. Forgive us. Our debts. To understand that idea of forgiveness, think again of that illustration of financial debt. You borrowed money from another person, from the bank. Now you find yourself in a situation where you, you can't pay that back. And perhaps the person that you've borrowed that money from graciously forgives the debt. The forgiveness of that debt means that that debt no more is counted to your record. There's no more a liability to pay for that. The forgiveness of that debt means the releasing of it, the letting go of it, that that person has to have an obligation to make you pay. As gracious as that is, you borrowed a large sum of money in the The person that's lent you that money says it's forgiven. 
It's gone. It's, it's let go. As gracious as that is, it's nothing compared to the graciousness of God in forgiving us our sins. God's forgiveness of us means, as Lord's Day 51 says, that is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us. To be forgiven means that God does not impute our sins to our account. If God would impute, that idea of imputing means it's recorded, it's reckoned over to our account, it's applied to our record. In forgiving us, God declares to us that he does not impute that sin and that debt to our account. It's not counted, it's not recorded, it's not applied to our record. But it's removed and taken away. One of the main New Testament biblical words for forgiveness is a word that literally means to release or to let go. God's forgiving of us is his releasing of the guilt of our sin, his letting go of the, the debt that we owe to him, his delivering us out of the, the liability to pay for our sin. God's forgiveness of us his promise and declaration to us that he will not enter into judgment with us for our sins. That he doesn't view us in the light of those sins. That he will not deal with us on the basis of those sins. They're not imputed. He releases and lets go. That in an act of pure grace, wholly undeserved, wholly unmerited, God graciously forgives. And in the knowledge that God is a God of justice and a God of mercy and grace, we cry out to Him in our prayers. Sinner, I've sinned greatly in all of my life and in all of my sins. Father, forgive. Do not impute these sins to my account. Release and let go the guilt of that sin. Don't view me in the light of it. Don't deal with me on the basis of it. But the important question here is, how can God justly forgive? And on what basis do we ourselves plead with God to forgive? God is a God of mercy, a God of grace. He is also a God of strict justice and righteousness. And God in his justice and righteousness demands that all sin that's committed against him be dealt with, be paid for. God cannot simply ignore sin. God doesn't simply sweep sin under the rug and, 
and act as if it's never happened. There has to be some just basis for God to forgive and some just ground on which we plead with God to forgive. And that basis is, of course, saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 51 said, that is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute. Lord Jesus Christ, as our elder brother, came into this world and he shouldered the guilt of our sin. He took upon himself our debt. As it were, he stood before the face of God and said, do not impute and count the debt of my people to their account, but put that on my account. I take responsibility for that. Bearing the guilt of our sin and our debt before God, it was necessary then for our Lord Jesus Christ to suffer the death of the cross. Death being the wages of sin. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to die and to die under the the wrath of God, to endure in his death the torments and the agonies of hell, everything that we deserve on account of our sins. Bearing that guilt and that debt, the Lord Jesus Christ paid. Not only did the Lord Jesus Christ in his death make full and complete atonement, in his life he obeyed the law perfectly. He fulfilled all of the obligations of the law of God in all of his life. He loved God with everything that he is and he loved the neighbor as himself. And that perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death at the cross God imputes, counts as our own. My guilt and my debt to Christ's account, his perfect keeping of the law and his atoning death at the cross, counted as my own. And it's on that basis, the basis of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done, and on that basis alone, that God forgives us our great and many sins, and it's on that basis that we confidently plead with God, forgive, my debt and sin is so great, Father, forgive, for the sake of Jesus Christ. We cry out to God then in faith. Faith which trusts, rests, relies upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. We do not come before the face of God with something of ourselves trying to bring in hand something that we've accomplished that makes us deserving of 
His forgiveness. We don't bring before God any of our works. We don't hold before God even our sorrow over sin and our confession and repentance and say, well, this, this makes me deserving of forgiveness. We don't even hold before God our faith itself as if faith itself makes us deserving of God's forgiveness. But faith rests and relies upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone in faith and that's the very nature of faith. It looks away from self and it looks alone to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what characterizes the child of God as we see our sin and as we cry out to God in prayer. Come to God in faith. Clinging to nothing but the Lord Jesus Christ in his cross alone. The blessedness of the gospel of grace is that our God is a God of compassion, a God of mercy, who forgives. That's beautifully taught in this parable. Represented, of course, in the, the merciful Father here. In the end, what drew that wayward son back was not the, the promise of food, but what drew that wayward son back out of that, that faraway land was the mercy of the Father. He knew his father was a merciful, compassionate father. And though the father himself, not like the earlier parables, like that seeking shepherd physically went out and grabbed a hold of that sheep and brought him back. The reality is basically that. The love and the compassion of the father pursued that lost son and all of the wretchedness of his sin. And it's the mercy of the father that drew him back. And in mercy, he forgives. We read in verse 20, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And it's as if the father interrupts him. If you compare that to what the son had planned to say earlier, he didn't get it all out. He hasn't said everything that he'd planned to say, but it's as if at that point the father interrupts him, stops him. The father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You would expect this father, he's been hurt. He's been taken advantage of by, by his son. Maybe see his son coming and with a sense of resentment make the son come to him. To be angry at the son. 
His father runs. He's had his eye on the the horizon all this time, looking for his son to come, and he sees that despicable figure, and he runs to go meet him. The son is covered in, in pig filth. Pigs being an abomination for the, for the Jews. The father doesn't care. Wraps him up in his arms, kisses him, and bestows upon him all the demonstrations of his restoration to a place in the, the home and the family and to sonship. He's forgiven. How merciful and compassionate is our Father to us. You and I are that lost, despicable, filthy sinner. And our Father, in His mercy and grace, totally undeserved and unmerited, forgives us our great and many transgressions for the sake of His Son. And this is then the greatest joy and blessedness for the, the child of God. There's a making merry in the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with God. We have joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can face the accusations of, of the devil, of the world, of our own conscience. We can face affliction. We can deal with chastisement. We can face the reality of death. We can go to the judgment day. Confidence and peace. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear that declaration of God in the gospel this morning. Your sins, great and many, forgiven for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the fifth petition, Jesus Christ concludes with the words, as we forgive our debtors. What's understood there is that others can and often do sin against us. And while their sinning against us, it's nothing like the debt of my own sins before God. There's a certain debt there that's incurred by their sin against us. This is the, the sorrow of life together as sinners. As a sinner, I'm going to sin against you. And as sinners, you're going to sin against me. Husbands and wives sin against one another. Parents and children sin against one another. Members of the church of Jesus Christ sin against one another. Classmates at school on the playground sin against one another. And often that's very painful. And while it's humbling when I'm the one who sinned against another to confess that sin openly 
and without minimizing or seeking to justify myself, that's humbling. It's equally as humbling to have to forgive my neighbor when he sinned against me. There is in our sinful nature a spirit just like the older brother in this parable. He's bitter. He's unforgiving. And what lies at the heart of that is that this elder brother views life in relationship to the the father in the home as a merit-based relationship. It's about wages. It's about earning. It's about doing enough to be To be good enough. And because he's been the faithful son who's done everything right. He thinks he deserves. And because the other brother, he's done it all wrong. The brother says, he doesn't deserve it. He's got to earn his way back in. And if he hasn't done enough yet, well then then he's not good enough. And I'm not going to forgive him. That spirit in our own nature, there's a temptation for us as well. Other than having a forgiving spirit, the sinful spirit of vengeance. The word of God calls us to forgive. For example, in Ephesians 4 verse 32, and be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, And as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. When another person confesses their sin and gives expression of genuine sorrow over that sin, we're called by God to forgive. If another person is walking impenitently in sin, obviously demonstrates no sorrow over sin, We know that we don't express to them and say to them, you're forgiven. But at the same time, that doesn't permit us to have a a sinful, vengeful spirit either. There must be in our hearts a readiness and a willingness to forgive. And then when there's confession of sin, to express forgiveness to the ones who've sinned against us. As hard and as painful as that is, as humbling as that is for us, we are called then to forgive. And to forgive knowing how much I have been forgiven. That's the relationship between these different parts of the petition. The relationship between these different parts of the petition is not that at the end now Jesus is setting forth a condition for our being forgiven of God. First meet this condition and then you can be forgiven. Neither is the relationship such that our forgiveness of one another is the pattern for God's forgiveness. God forgive me just following the pattern of my forgiving another. That's not the relationship either. Catechism and explanation of That relationship puts it this way, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Our forgiving our neighbor is an evidence of God's grace in us. 
evidence. It's the evidence. It's the fruit. It's the demonstration of the fact that I know myself the forgiveness of God. I've been forgiven. The debt that I owe before God is an infinite debt. I've got absolutely nothing to pay. God's forgiveness of me is wholly unmerited and undeserved and gracious. And God graciously for the sake of his son has forgiven me my sins. What joy, what blessedness to know the forgiveness of my sins. Knowing that. Motivated then to forgive my neighbor. They sinned against me. That's hurtful. There's a debt that's been incurred there. But knowing that God has forgiven me an even greater debt, I can forgive my neighbor. Beloved, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, been forgiven, forgiven much, great debt, knowing that, grateful for that, and ready also to forgive your neighbor. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the precious truth of the gospel Thankful for the declaration to our souls of the forgiveness of our sins. We pray, apply that word to our hearts by thy spirit. Comfort us and continue to bring us to sorrow over our sins. Give us the grace to see them, to grieve over them, to be broken over them with a broken and a contrite spirit. And we pray, Father, that thou wilt give us grace also to forgive our neighbor their debts against us. So, Father, then may we live in the church of Christ, one with another, in love, in gratitude, and in a demonstration of the knowledge and the confidence that we have of our own salvation and forgiveness in Christ. Hear us for his sake. Amen.